Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Okay, and then Luke's gospel. Why don't you stand as we read from God's word together? Luke 11, 1 through 4. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he had ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John also taught his disciples, so he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, I think messages that just tell you to be good either damn you to pride or to despair. To your pride, because for some of us, we're good little Pharisees who think that we're better than other people. Or for so many other people, it's that it pushes you towards despair, because for most of us, We've already found how far short we actually fall, even of our own expectations, let alone the perfect expectation of the law of God. And so may I remind you that my goal in this series that we've been calling Grow Together is not to tell you to be good or to try harder in some area of your life. My goal really is to call you to follow Jesus in faith and obedience as you yield to the work of the Spirit in your life. Whether in unity, as we've discussed, or in service, or in generosity, or as we discussed today, even in prayer. You know, I think we'd all agree that because of Jesus' prayer for us to be unified, that's recorded in John 17, that our unity and humility should matter to us because it matters clearly to Jesus. And when it comes to service, the question that we're meant to contemplate and consider is not if God is calling us to serve, it's really where, how, and who is God calling us to serve because a servant is not greater than his master. And this is what Jesus did as he served us. And when it comes to generosity, we see it not as a question of if we are to be generous, but where, how, and who is God calling us to be generous with. When we look at our time and talents and treasure that God has entrusted for us to steward. And today we wrap up this series by discussing prayer as an expression of love. Prayer as an expression of love. It's Martin Luther who's credited with saying, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And yet unfortunately, it's been rightly observed that for many of us modern American followers of Jesus, that we don't really treat prayer like breathing. We treat it more like a prescription medication that's meant to rid us of an infection or problem. And once the infection is gone, oh, the frequency and fervency of our prayers go out the door with it. But my friends, we ought to pray out of a dependence on God, out of a desperation for God, and even out of a response of love for God. You see, I think prayer is such an amazing gift and privilege that God gives us, but I think it's something that's often, too often overlooked and really underutilized, that we don't really value it, and it might be because We're forgetful or maybe failing even to understand it. But one of my favorite things about prayer really is its profound simplicity, that it's easy enough for a child to understand and participate in. And yet it's complex enough for even as us who maybe are mature or grown old adults to still be able to find ourselves in wonder about. 
The reality that God is available to me all the time with all of his resources and all of his comfort and support that he's always just a prayer way. Now, I want you to know my goal today is simply to remind you of the simplicity and the privilege and the power of prayer. I want to encourage you by looking at the goodness of God and encourage you then because of that to spend time speaking to God. And so in talking about the topic of prayer today, I want to do that by kind of looking at three different things. The first is how we are to pray. And then we'll answer the question of what Jesus teaches us to pray and then why scripture instructs us we should pray. So on prayer, the how, the what, and the why. So if we begin with the how, I don't want to overcomplicate this at all. Prayer really is simply talking to God. And what I was told as a child is it's talking to God as if he's in the room with you. But really, the truth is it's talking to God, believing with confidence that he is in the room seated there right next to you. I mean, do you remember what it was like when you first learned that God cared about you and that he wanted to hear from you, that there's a creator of this universe and that he was seeking an audience with you? Now, I can't speak for you, but for me, I don't know how or why really it happens, but I can attest to the fact that it's happened several different times, many times over the years where I find myself having prayer shift from this amazing privilege into feeling more like a duty, or from recognizing it as this gift and blessing to seeing it then as an obligation, from prayer being a joy and joyful expression from my heart to instead beginning to feel like a chore. I was just thinking this week that, that if prayer is merely a duty to us, then we're failing to see and understand the gift and profound world-shaping power that prayer, the gift of prayer, holds inside of it. You see, I have a tendency and pattern to lose my sense of wonder that I once had, that God, the creator who loves me, also invites me to speak with him. I lose the wonder that I can, regardless of where I am, I can be in his presence and know that he hears me. Regardless of how big my problem may feel, have confidence that he's bigger and wiser still, or even confident that how small my request may seem to know that he still cares, or regardless of how I feel or what I think to know that I can be honest with him, and regardless of what I've done or how big, big of a mess that I've made, to still have confidence that I haven't exhausted his grace or his patience with me, and that he still invites me, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. You see, sometimes I lose my sense of wonder at the invitation God gives us to pray, to speak to him, to know him, and to be known by him. Oh, do you remember what it was like when you first realized that this was available to you? You see, prayer is first and foremost, it's meant to be an act of love. My prayers are meant to be born out of a desire to be with Jesus and out of a response to his great love for me and the invitation he gives me to be known and to know him too. You see, for a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, prayer is not spent or meant to be seen as a way that you would spend your time so much as you would view it as a way that you would invest your time. And we know, especially when it comes to our money, we know there's a difference between spending money and investing money. And maybe in your home, you've had conversations about those shoes might be nice or cost a lot of money, but they're not an investment. You might be a collector, but that's not an investment, a shoe collection. Unless you're a sneakerhead, maybe you can turn those for a profit. But spending money is far different than investing money. You see, with an investment comes an expectation of a future payoff, of a looming benefit, of a byproduct of that investment. And that's what prayer is meant to be viewed as by the Christian, as an investment of time. You see, and it's also meant to be viewed as a great privilege for the follower of Jesus. 
It's a great privilege because it hasn't always been this way. I mean, for centuries, people have longed to have the access and favor with God that you have. Where people, for centuries, for millennia even, they did not have the opportunity that you have to at any time boldly enter the presence of God to pour out their hearts to him. For centuries, common man were separated from God's presence. God's spirit was dwelling in a temple, and it was separated from the common person by three different veils inside of the temple. There was only one person once a year that entered into God's presence with fear and trembling, carrying with him the blood of an innocent sacrifice. Oh, but you know the story. Everything changed when God comes in the form of a man, suffers and dies in my place, breathes his last on the cross, and the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, God's spirit bursts through the temple, no longer to be separated from sinful man. Because of Jesus, God can now be freely accessed by you and by me, by forgiven men and women. You see, prayer is such a privilege because it hasn't always been this way. You know, we had a trip scheduled for Israel that was set to leave this next month. Uh, that because of all that's so very tragic playing out in Israel, we've, we've pushed that trip back another year, and I'd hope that you'd consider joining us. But one of my favorite places to go when in Israel is to go to the Western Wall, or what's commonly referred to as the Wailing Wall. And, and it's very popular as a, as a site for people, religious pilgrims, to, to get to, because you'll find there on any given day an assortment, a massive variety of languages being spoken by people from all over the world who come to pray passionately. Oh, they'll sing, you'll hear them in moments rejoicing, but you'll also pe- hear people weeping and wailing there as they're professing their deep need for God, people from all over the world traveling to that place because that place, that retaining wall, is the closest spot that the open public can get to, to where above it, on top of the Temple Mount, the temple once rested and God's spirit, his presence actually dwelt there. And so people from all over the world are coming and they're bringing with them little pieces of paper that have their prayers written out and even the prayers of friends at home that are traveling with them just to get them into, pushed into a little crack between one of the rocks of that big wall. You've probably seen the photos or videos of it before. But the reason they're doing it, putting their prayers there, is because in their minds this is, no matter how long the journey was, it's worth it because they believe that this is the closest I can come to the presence of God. And if I can just get close enough, then maybe he'd hear me. I love going there because, yes, I love to see people who are passionate about seeking God and wanting to have audience with him. But I really love going there because I leave every time so full of joy and reminded of the amazing gift that I have been given as a follower of Jesus. Because I know that God is neither living in a space or limited to a place. God now resides inside of me. I don't need to travel to a wall of an ancient retaining wall that once had a temple on top of it. The Bible says, I am now the temple of the Holy Spirit. I love how Colossians says it in chapter 1, verse 27. It says, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, I rejoice every time I go there because I remember that I have the very thing people are traveling from all over the world in order to seek. I have access and nearness to the presence of God. That's what they're after so that they can have some sense of confidence that God will hear them. But I'm told in scripture I have that at all times. 
In fact, I'm told in scripture, I have something in addition to that. Yes, I have access and nearness to God, but I also am told I have favor with God because of what Jesus did in my place. Well, sometimes I forget what a special privilege I have today to have confidence that I please God because of Jesus, that I can be connected to God in a moment's notice and be heard by God at any time. Oh, it's a special and powerful thing because of what it cost God to give me that unique privilege. Oh, we're talking about how to pray. And prayer is simply talking to God. Though simple, it's so very profound, the privilege that we have in the gift of prayer. Oh, and it's not my time to simply talk nice to God. It's my opportunity to be real and authentic with God. More real and authentic with Him than I feel that I can be with anyone else. As I've mentioned here before, I really believe that prayer is meant to be our response to God's original question to humanity. All the way back in the garden, when God first asked man a question, he asked them, Adam, where are you? And I think my prayers are the continuation of the conversation that God started with humanity in the Garden of Eden. My prayers leave me with the same choice that the first humans had, though as they chose to respond to it. The choice is either be exposed or cover up. And what they did was they covered up. And what I do so much is the same thing. That I'm allowed to come and to have my heart exposed to God as raw and ugly and scary sometimes as it may feel to do that. That's what I'm invited to do. Author John Mark Comer said it this way in his book, God Has a Name. He said, prayer is what Jesus did with the Father in Gethsemane. It's brutally honest, naked, and vulnerable. It's when your deepest desires and fears and hopes and dreams leak out of your mouth with no inhibition. It's when you talk to God with the edit button in the off position and you feel safe and heard and loved. It's the kind of a relational exchange you can't get enough of. You see, grace tells me that I have nothing to lose, nothing to prove, and nothing to hide. And grace is what I believe I will be greeted with when I enter God's presence in prayer. And I believe that because Jesus was treated as an enemy so that I could be received as God's son. Oh, do you remember in John 14, Jesus instructed his followers to pray in his name. This is why the the church throughout the ages has done this, has taught to pray in Jesus' name. And although I personally believe it's a great way to end our prayers by saying in Jesus' name, I do, however, believe it's communicating far more than just to add this as a tagline to the end of your prayers. Because really what Jesus is teaching is that we are to pray in line with Jesus' character. To pray in his name is to pray the very heart of Jesus for the world. We should pray in Jesus' name because it expresses the unique access that Christ purchased and provided for us that we can come boldly, Scripture says, to the throne of grace where we obtain mercy and grace and help in time of need. You see, in praying in Jesus' names, in his name, do you see that we have the same access that Jesus did to the Father? Which is why Jesus didn't just exemplify approaching God as a Father. He didn't even stop at just inviting us to approach God as a Father. No, Jesus took it a step further and instructed us to approach God, speaking to him and addressing him as a Father. New Testament scholar uh, Larry Hurtado writes that to pray in Jesus' name means that we enter into Jesus' status in God's favor and invoke Jesus standing with God. And if that feels too provocative for you, may I remind you of 2 Corinthians 5.21, 
where it says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's author J.I. Packer who brilliantly observed. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Well, we're talking about how to pray, but can we shift gears and discuss the second thing, and that would be what to pray. And I had you turn to Luke chapter 11, because it records a very interesting request that the disciples made of Jesus. It's there in the first verse, where they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples to pray. This is the only time that you find in the New Testament where it's recorded that Jesus' disciples come to him asking him to teach them something. And he didn't, they didn't come and say, would you teach us how to calm the sea? Or teach us how to heal the sick? Or teach us how to drive out the demons? Or, or to teach with the authority and power that you have? No, they came instead asking him, teach us to pray. And I believe that's because they saw that this was Jesus' practice. This was something Jesus did often, was break away from the crowds to be quiet and sit alone to commune with his Father. And they recognized that flowing out of that intimate connection in prayer, flowing out of that time with his Father, was the great power that Jesus had and his authority and wisdom and strength. And so Jesus responds, teaching them, pray in this manner. And you know it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, later manuscripts of Matthew's gospel also include an additional line where they record, for yours is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. You know, as I just mentioned, this prayer is recorded in, in a second place, and it's in Matthew chapter 6. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, actually. But Matthew records that Jesus gave the same instructions, or that he gave, excuse me, Matthew records that he gave additional instructions before teaching them how to pray. He told them, don't pray for an applause, just making some big scene in public, praying these long, beautiful, eloquent prayers. Don't do that, because if you're doing that, He's checking the condition and motivation of their heart. He's saying, you already have what you were looking for. Because you're not looking for a connection with God or an answer from him. You're looking to turn heads around you. But then he also said, don't pray mindlessly. Just mindlessly saying and repeating things, the same things over and over again. But instead he said, pray in this manner or pray after this pattern. So what's the pattern that Jesus teaches us to pray in? Well, I think he begins with telling us, and if you are a note taker, it might be worth writing down, to first and foremost, remember who you're talking to. That when you approach God in prayer, the first thing you should be mindful of is to remember who you're talking to. You see, Jesus, in a sense, gave us the address that we are sending our communication and requests to. He says, when you pray, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or your name is holy. He says, you're approaching a father who is also simultaneously a holy God. You know, I have a, a dad, an earthly father, who I think is a wonderful man. Although imperfect he may be, because all of us are, he did a great job raising us as a family. And he always had in his heart the desire to meet our needs. And I even think he secretly, hidden way deep down, also had a desire to meet a lot of our wants as well. He had a great heart in him and loved all five of his children. However, 
Regardless of how much he may have desired to meet our needs, sometimes as a scuffling church planter, he had limited resources that would keep him from meeting some of those needs. And so our family, and it was years afterwards when it kind of dawned on me, we used to go volunteer at a food distribution center uh, each week as kids, which I thought was great to help all of these people. It never dawned on me that we also took two boxes of food home every week because my dad had limited resources. And this is how God provided for our family. My point is my God or my dad always desired to meet our needs, but sometimes had limited resources in the process of trying to meet those needs. But think of this, to address God as Father speaks of his care and character. And it also speaks of the access and favor we have with God. But the one that we address our prayers to is not just a Father who's desiring, willing to meet my needs. He's also a holy God who's able to meet my needs, who's capable of handling my every problem. You see, for God to be holy, it's telling you that, that he has limitless resources. Holy in the simplest of terms, it means high above or set apart or categorically different from. We have a, a heavenly father who's willing to meet our needs, who is also simultaneously a holy God who's capable and able of meeting my needs. You know, I was thinking about this just this week. I did a hospital visit for someone who is in ICU to pray with her. And as we began to pray, I began by thanking God that this is who we get to address. That you give us this instruction to approach you as a father who is high above and holy. And I was giving thanks because I recognized the position of God. That's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of the position of God as Lord over all of creation, even my life and hers while also causing me not just to remember the position of God as Lord of all, but to recognize and remember the posture of God as he leans forward like a father to hear the request of his children. You see, Jesus is teaching us to pray this way to God as a father who is holy because it reminds us that God is as compassionate as he is capable. You see, when we pray, I think we have to slow down to remember who we're talking to but Jesus also encourages us to remember a second thing, and that's to remember that he's working. Remember when Jesus instructed us to pray, he said, pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's reminding us to think beyond just ourselves and our own little world and to think about what God is doing on a global scale. You see, I think sometimes in the storyline of the Bible, it's easy for many to overlook the storyline of God's kingdom. But for Jesus, the message of the gospel and of the kingdom were inseparable. They were one and the same. It's not just that I think as we open a Bible, we can overlook the storyline of the kingdom that's always expanding in a king who in the future comes here and literally sets up a kingdom. It's not just in the Bible that we overlook it. I think in our own lives we do too. You see, I can feel defeated and overwhelmed and alone and forsaken, and I have to remember that God is active and working in our world. I have to remember the end of the book, where God is king and stands by me, calling me his son, that the day is coming that he makes everything right again. You see, the kingdom reminds me that God's promise was not that things would be easy for me but that in the end, everything will once again be made good and right. You see, there's so many times that for me personally, my prayers as I approach God, it's frantic and it begins in desperation. But as I'm praying, my desperation begins to shift to hopefulness 
because I remember not just who I'm addressing, but I'm reminded of his kingdom. I'm reminded that he is faithfully working and working things together for good. Oh, I begin to tell God, God, here's what I'm asking for. Here's the question I really need an answer to. This is the hurt that I'm needing healing from. This is the fear that I need your peace over. But God, I tell you, I want you to know that I trust you more than I trust my own ability to figure things out or come up with a plan so your will be done. You see, the truth is that sometimes my own approach to God, and maybe you can relate to this, can, can really be very shallow. But prayer is not the means of me getting my will done in heaven. Prayer is God's means of aligning my heart and priorities with his so that his will then is accomplished here on earth. You see, as Jesus instructed his disciples to pray, and that instruction echoes to us, he tells them, first, remember who you're talking to, a holy God who also is your father. Oh, remember that he's working and you get to be a part of that kingdom expansion and work. And then a third thing is that you, as you pray, are to remember that you matter to him. You're to remember that you matter to him. He said, then pray, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Did you notice we're instructed to pray for material and immaterial needs that we have? Really, I believe that no need is too big or too small that God wants to hear from you. And did you notice the frequency of how often he wants to hear from you? Jesus said that you should pray, give us this day our daily bread. To ask God for daily provision is obviously connected then to you going back to God and asking daily. The American evangelist from 100 years ago, R.A. Torrey, he wrote, God delights to have us shameless beggars turned his direction, for it shows our faith in him, and he is mightily pleased with that faith. You see, it hasn't, hasn't always been this way in my own life, but my prayer life is really a balance of two things. Yes, I have scheduled times that I set aside to pray. I even have a, an alarm that goes off on my phone mid-morning to remind me, if I haven't already, to slow down and to pray and to sit with God. I've scheduled times like that, or I've scheduled times around a table at, at a meal. It's, it's in the evening to sit with my wife and finish our day by praying together. But it's not just these set scheduled times. What also has developed in my own life is this ongoing dialogue of prayer. It's much like my relationship with my wife. We don't function where we go throughout the day without dialoguing and then sit together at night just to monologue a bit. No, we're constantly in communication throughout the day. There's quick text messages to give updates on things, not just what's happening or what's scheduled for our family, but how we're doing and feeling about things that are going on in our lives. And my prayer life has taken form like that. I mean, if you've been around here long, you know I'm a, I'm a sucker for a good if-then statement. So let me give you one. Listen, if God really cares for me as much as this book tells me that he does, and as much as the cross demonstrates that he does, then I should not feel hesitancy to take any and every need to him in prayer. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says it this way, that you should pray without ceasing. I don't think we're meant to read that and picture ourselves walking around saying like, I can't talk to you. I'm only, uh, I'm only talking to God because for me to pray without ceasing means it has to be this unbroken conversation that's constant and never, never ceasing. I don't think that's the idea that we can't speak to anyone else because we only speak to God if we're obeying that verse. No, I think what it's telling you is that prayer should, should become so second nature to take things to God 
that it becomes almost like breathing, this natural action, this natural response, that I hear news of a tragedy and I turn to God in prayer, that I hear the sound of an ambulance, I turn to God in prayer, I feel overwhelmed and anxious, I turn to God in prayer, I'm faced with my sin and shortcomings, I turn to God in prayer, I'm frustrated by circumstances, I turn to God in prayer. And I'll tell you, this is one of the ways I want to demonstrate this for my kids, just so practically. When we're driving in the car together, I love to just begin talking to God, not even tell them, guys, I'm going to now begin to pray, but just begin to talk to God and then to invite them to do it too. Because I want them to see we don't just pray around a table to give thanks. We pray as things come to mind or things in life happen to us. We, we pray for people. I'm a selfish person. I'm happy to admit it. Well, I'm not happy to. I'm willing to. But I'm a selfish person. When someone comes to mind for me, I'm assuming because I'm a selfish person and my natural tendency is to think of myself, if I have an other-centered thought, I'm assuming it's God. So I take the time to pray for them, even if it's as quick as just, God, you just made me think of this person. I don't know what's going on in their life. I'm praying your blessing and provision and protection and peace in their life. I pray that constantly for people throughout the day. And I want my kids to see me do it even out loud so they see that this is what it looks like to talk to God. See, in Scripture, we are instructed to pray by Jesus also, remembering the things and the people that matter to you. I mean, did you notice the pronouns that Jesus uses in his instruction he gives us on how to pray? All of them were plural. Give us this day. Forgive us. Protect us. You see, in asking for God's provision and pardon and protection, we are to do so not only asking for ourselves, but also for others around us as well. You see, all throughout Scripture, we're giving the instruction to intercede on behalf of others. We stand before God on their behalf, bringing our requests and theirs to Him. And I've become convinced the more that time goes by, that prayer is often the most beneficial thing I can do for someone else. Because the effect of my prayer in someone else's life can impact and change them from the inside out. You see, through prayer in the comfort of my own home or even in the comfort of my car as I'm making my morning commute, quote unquote, because I don't really have when I work from home. I've got this shed in the backyard. It's a little awkward. But as I'm driving to meetings in that space, I can impact people in places all over the world, hundreds or even thousands of miles away all because I place the needs of other before a gracious God in prayer. You know, think about this with me for a second. You know, sometimes I wonder if we'll have an opportunity in heaven to see, to see lives that we've impacted, or even to see lives that have been impacted by our prayers, to see what, what impact our prayers had in the world around us, and, and to see what those prayers had as far as an impact even in individual lives. But often I also wonder if God actually answered all of my prayers with a yes in the last 30 days, would anything change in the world or just in my little world? Even for you, if God had answered yes to every prayer you brought to him in the last 30 days, would anything actually change in the world or would things just change in your little world? You see, I believe that prayer both reveals the heart and it transforms it. What you pray for, even how much you prioritize prayer, reveals what matters most to you. It's author J.C. Ryle. He writes that it reveals the state of your soul and where your real priorities lie. 
But it's, it's not only that prayer reveals your heart. Scripture is very clear that it also transforms your heart. As your heart is aligned with God's as we sit in his presence and ask for his will to be done. We don't merely ask for these things so that we might receive them, but we also approach God with our requests, knowing that he would also reshape our hearts through the consistent request of them. Okay, let me give you an example of that. Me turning to God in prayer each day for provision and for forgiveness causes me to live each day without bearing the weight of my family's provision on my own shoulders all alone. And without, I live my day without living under pressure to try to make myself worthy of his care because it reminds me, when I pray for those things, it reminds me that I experience God's forgiveness and provision because of his great effort and merit in the person of Jesus. And it reshapes my heart then. It reshapes the way that I live my life each day. You see, we're talking about the topic of prayer today, about how to pray and what Jesus instructed us to pray. But I want to land this plane by answering the question of why we do it. And so this is how we'll wrap up is asking and answering the question of why. And I'll do that because when I was young and, and even young in the faith, my question was simple. It was really just, what is prayer? Well, it's, it's talking to God or, or how should I pray? Well, well, what kinds of things should I pray or can I or should I be praying about these sorts of things? That was how my simple mind worked then. But then as I got older, at least at uh, I don't know if it's true of you. I don't want to say that as we get older, but it's true for many of us that cynicism starts to set in. We start to question a level or two beneath those questions when we ask, well, why does God even want me to pray? And what I want to do is spend the remainder of our time telling you what keeps me from praying. And there's three things that I observe in my own life and in my own time of prayer that hinder me from going to God in prayer. Three things that basically function as a roadblock. And the first thing, it's simple, it's forgetfulness. And sure, yes, it's that I get busy and I forget to pray, but it's, it's really often more than that. It's really that I forget why I should pray. It's forgetfulness. Sometimes I need a little reminding because I forget, of who, I forget who I'm dealing with, who it is who's inviting me to approach him. That God is the strongest, wisest, most loving entity in the universe. And he's inviting me to speak with him, that he chooses to engage with me. Remember that he is a father who's willing to meet my needs and a holy God who's able, who's capable. That his position is Lord over all, but his posture is a father leaning in. I forget the character of God. First Peter, it calls on us, he calls on us to cast our cares upon him, knowing that he cares about what happens to us. The reason we bring God the cares that we have is because we know that God cares so much for us. You see, sometimes I need reminding also of why God even wants me to pray. I mean, have you ever had this thought, if God already knows everything, then why tell him what I need if he already knows what I need? Well, it's because he's a father that wants to hear from and care for his children. For me, I have an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and then an almost 7-year-old. And all three of them, parenting would be way easier if they all had the same personality. You know, like if a parenting manual was like a one-size-fits-all, this could be so simple. But as you know, if you're a parent, your kids all have such different personalities and different quirks and challenges to them. But one thing I've learned all three of my kids have in common is that my kids have all grown up resisting my help until they're willing to solicit it. 
They resist my help saying, dad, no, stop. I don't want your help until they come to the point where they recognize that they actually need it. And once they recognize that and are willing to admit that they need my help, well, then they want it. And then they're willing and able to receive it. Listen, I, as a dad in that situation, I want nothing more than to help my kids, but I've often learned I have to wait for them to ask it. I have to wait for them to realize they need it and then ask for it in order for them to open the door of opportunity for me to come and help them. Now, hear me, please. My prayers are not for the purpose of simply informing God of information that he's unaware of. He's God. He knows my needs before I even ask him. Nor is prayer like a coin that I deposit into a vending machine and then push A6 and watch a new car drop out. It doesn't work that way. Nor is prayer me twisting God's arm, convincing him to do something that he doesn't want to do for me. No, instead, my prayers, here's how I view them, are me opening the door for God. For God to come in and do things he's maybe even been desiring to do, but wouldn't do before in violation of my free will. He waited for me like my children. He was waiting for me like I have to do with them, for them to recognize their need of my help, and to solicit it so that I could then provide that need and care for them. Oh, my friends, invite your Heavenly Father into your fears and your dreams, your aspirations, your family, your workplace, your worries. We ask, if God already knows everything, then why should I pray? The early church father, Augustine, he wrote, God does not ask us to tell him our needs that he may learn about them, but in order that we might be capable of receiving what he has prepared to give. Oh, sometimes I just forget why God even wants me to pray. I should pray because it really gives me the perspective that I need. Timothy Keller has a beautiful book on prayer, and he says it this way. He says, prayer is the only entryway into self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change. And he explains that deep change as the reordering of our loves. You see, when I take time, especially in the morning, as I have the onset of my day to pray and sit in the presence of God, it reminds me that God is there and that he cares and that he's capable and that I'm not alone in this life, that I face nothing alone. It makes me think of Philippians chapter 4 where it says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And when you do that, what does it say? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. But have you ever noticed in that passage, it says nothing about an explanation. It says nothing about even your circumstances changing if you pray. You see, this is not a doctor's prescription like, hey, take two of these and call me in the morning. You'll be good as new. Now, what prayer is, is it's the expression of trust that paves the way for the experience of peace is what Paul says. That prayer is the expression of trust that paves the way for the experience of peace. Again, quoting Keller in his book on prayer, he says, prayer is the way to experience a powerful confidence that God is handling our lives well, that our bad things will turn out for good, our good things cannot be taken from us, and the best things are yet to come. For me, I forget. I forget why God even wants me to pray, but I should pray consistently and fervently because it actually does something. Do you remember that moment in the Old Testament where Elisha and his servants are, are, are there and an army of Assyrians are coming their direction and the servant is freaking out and he says, listen, look at the army. There are so many more of them than of us. We stand no chance. 
And Elisha prays so that his eyes would be open to see the reality of the situation. And what he saw was an army of angels and recognize that there's more with us than with them. You see, sometimes what I do is I forget that there's more happening than what meets the eye. That there are things happening in the spiritual realm that I, realm that I am unaware of. You see, Scripture goes to great lengths to give us insight into, though, what happens in the spiritual realm when we pray. It's Acts chapter 12. While the people are praying and Peter is in prison, assumed to be on death row, but then an earthquake comes and an angel breaks his bonds and pops open the prison door and leads him to that very house where they're praying, where he knocks upon the door. And they could not believe that God had answered their prayer in such a miraculous way. And it's been wisely said of that moment that though an angel fetched Peter, a prayer fetched that angel first. You see, my prayer is uttered, and when it is, it's heard in the very throne room of God, and he dispatches a response. You see it as a messenger angel in Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel's praying for understanding because he lives in a wild world like we do. And he's saying, God, please help me to understand what to do and what to think of these things. And God dispatches a messenger angel. It's in the book of Isaiah when King Hezekiah, he's praying because an army's coming his direction. And he lays out their threats before God in prayer and says, these are your people that they're threatening. And it's your promises you need to protect. And then God sent out a military angel to fight that battle for them. It's Jesus as he fasted and prayed alone that ministering angels were responding to that prayer and came and ministered strength to him while he was tempted. Oh, pray, my friends, because it does something. My friends, don't make the mistake of seeing prayer as merely a way that we get things from God while completely overlooking prayer as the way to get more of God himself. You see, sometimes my failure, failure to pray is because I forget why I should pray. But here's that second reason why sometimes I fail to pray. And it's just disappointment. If I'm honest with you, when I notice that like, hey, I'm not really praying that often. My mind is not going there. I'm not taking in my heart things to God like I usually do. I often find dis disappointment is like a roadblock hindering me from going to God. Because I get disappointed, I get disheartened when I don't see sometimes the immediate impact and effect of my prayers. But it's in those moments that you and I need to remember that even Jesus' prayers were not answered when or in the way that he had hoped. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane where three times he prayed, if there's another way, take this cup from before me. Even Jesus' prayers were not always answered when and in the way that he had hoped. Now, unfortunately, God doesn't work on my timetable Fortunately, however, it's because he's far more wise than I am, and he has reasons for not working on my timetable. Ultimately, many of us would say at this point in our lives, if you've lived enough life and walked with Jesus long enough, that it's probably a good thing that God didn't answer every prayer we ever spoke in the time frame that we had hoped for. For many of us, we would admit that we would have ended up in a career that we would have been miserable in, that we would have ended up married to the wrong person, and at least in my case, I can't speak for yours, but my sister would have been struck by lightning many times by the time we finished middle school. It's a good thing. It's Sir Richard Trench, the Archbishop of Dublin, he said it this way. He says, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his willingness. Yes, the way God works, his timing, his delays, they're a mystery to me. But that should not be taken as an indicator that he's disinterested in me. Because remember, prayer is not twisting God's arm. It's opening the door for him. It's been wisely said that God's delays are not the delays of inactivity, but are delays of preparation. 
I may be praying and losing heart because I'm not seeing some instant impact, but that doesn't mean that God is not moving and working in my life. See, sometimes I fail to pray because of disappointment, and maybe that's true of you too. But if you have a God who's powerful enough for you to be angry with or disappointed with, for not intervening and doing what you believe he's more than capable of doing with that power, then you and I, we also have to be humble enough to also simultaneously admit that we have a God who's wise enough to maybe have reasons for it that are beyond our comprehension in that moment. You see, the question for you and I is, are we willing to trust him and persist in prayer? And I just want to appeal to you to not become disheartened and discouraged because you and I, as the people of God, have a responsibility to pray. Think of Moses in the Old Testament where the people of God have rebelled against him and God finally says, I'm done, it's enough, I'm wiping them out. But then Moses intercedes on their behalf. And when he prays, it says in Exodus 32, verse 14, the Lord relented from the harm which with, with which he said that he would do to his people. Where the Hebrew translation, it's God relented from an undesirable course of action, all because Moses prayed. Think back even further to the book of Genesis with Abraham and his nephew Lot, where Abraham appealed and prayed on his behalf that God would spare righteous Lot, he calls him, from that city that he dwelt in. And God did that very thing. But then you come in the prophets to Ezekiel. When it says in Ezekiel 22, and I quote, So I sought for a man among them who would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, I've poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them. In Scripture, it says that God's hand of mercy was willing to be extended, but no one would stand in the gap and pray. It's James chapter 5 that says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. The reason I fail to pray, for me personally, is that sometimes I forget. I forget why God even wants me to pray. It's sometimes that I'm disheartened. But this is the last thing, and if your Bible's still open, you can close it, because I'd love for you just to listen with an open heart, even to your own life. Because the third reason that sometimes I find myself not going to God in prayer is because of shame. Sometimes I have this little ugly voice inside of me that maybe you hear sometimes too that just says, don't go to him, you're not good enough. He doesn't want to hear from you, you're a failure. You know what's in your heart, oh, so does he. You think he wants to deal with you? I have to remember that there's a huge difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation tells me I'm not good enough for God and to run from God. Conviction, though, causes me to run to God in repentance and to celebrate his forgiveness. It reminds me of the goodness of God in my life. It reminds me of his love and patience. Yes, both those things are when I'm confronted with my own sinful brokenness. But one is an enemy trying to drive me from God, and the other, my conviction, is meant to drive me towards him. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then your sin is paid for and it's been put away with. And that is why, when Jesus was treated as an enemy, you would be welcomed as a son, given the access and favor of the Son of God himself, praying in his name, leaning into his right to access the very heart of God. You know, one of my earliest childhood memories took place the summer before I entered kindergarten. 
we lived in this little townhouse that was up against a wooded area that was a ton of fun for my older brother and some of the neighbor kids and I to go and explore inside of. And one day in, in the afternoon, myself and one of the neighbor kids found an old bucket of paint that was partially pried open. And so we were able to break open the bucket of white paint and then to grab some branches with leaves on them and begin to use them like prehistoric paintbrushes to paint this fallen down tree that was beginning to rot and decompose there in the middle of this wooded area. I mean, it was such an amazing time for like a five-year-old that we lost track of time and apparently a lot of time had gone by and our families were out looking for us. My older brother was the first one to find us and when he saw us, he pointed out something that we were completely naive to. And that's that that paint wasn't just on the log, it was now all over our little five-year-old bodies, every square inch it seemed. And my brother quickly pointed it out and then said, Dad is going to be so angry at you. You are going to be in such big trouble. And so I did the very thing that any sensible child would do when my brother left to go get my parents, is I ran and hid. I chose to hide with no plan of when I'd emerge from hiding or how I'd survive on my own in the wilderness. But for me, even as a little kid, my feeling of shame about the mistake and the mess that I'd made, it caused me, please hear me, to forget everything that I knew to be true about my good father. And for me, I lived for months then off acorns and pine cones. And <laughs> Now, the sad thing is the police were called and a search party ensued and I was finally found. And when I was, I was welcomed back into our home. I was hugged and I was kissed and the stains were easily, easily washed and wiped off of me. May I remind you to not let shame cloud your judgment and cause you to forget the things you know to be true about the character of your good heavenly father. God came to this earth and his message wasn't run from me. No, his invitation was come unto me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Oh, approach your good God with confidence this week, remembering that Jesus didn't just invite us to join with him in addressing God as a father. No, he took it the next step in, in instructing us as his followers to do it. Oh, spend time this week talking to your heavenly father, asking him what he wants you to see and to learn and to do in this season. Answering the original question he gave to humanity with honesty, answer it. Where are you? Intercede on behalf of others this week. Your prodigals or, or even those that you cross or cross your path as you walk the street. Oh, approach him with confidence knowing that you are loved by him. You see, this is where we transition to communion because this is where we're reminded of our confidence. This is the roots of the confidence that we have that we are loved by him. And so I'll pray and then have Casey lead us in a song before we partake of these elements together. So Father, we pause to thank you for the gift you've given us of access to you and favor with you. And that that access came at great cost to you. That you would not demand it of us to make things right in a way that we could never do. Because of our sin, we are separated from you. But Jesus, you would come to make right what we've done wrong and to make a way for us to access God and have favor with him. Jesus, we hold this morning the token, the reminder, a broken body and shed blood. And so Jesus, we thank you for this amazing gift and we do not overlook what it cost you to give it. And so we remember in this moment, in Jesus' name.
Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.